Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful day, for the weather we've been having, and that you just blessed us with rain. And we ask you to bless this time as we open the word and to study and ask you to show us and lead us into what you'd have us to see. In your son's name, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again on the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from you, Lord, this shall not be unto you. And he turned and said unto Peter, Get you behind me, Satan, you are an offense unto me, you, for you savor not the things which be of God, but those which be of men. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And who, for whosoever will save his life will lose it, and whosoever lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in glory of, of his Father with the angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right, so we're going to look at these verses. Um, up to this point, remember, we've got just before this event, we have Simon Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, and he says, that You're, this truth, I'll build my kingdom. And he starts teaching his disciples about his death. Okay, he's been doing it up till this point, but it, it seems like his whole message, by the way this says, changes. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to resurrect, which is kind of an amazing thing that when they, when they went to Jerusalem, that all of this surprised them. And that the resurrection surprised them. He has been telling them all along, and during this last six months or so, he intensifies. And this is his whole message to them. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And we've talked about this before, how when the apostles were hearing this, it kind of was the old Charlie Brown uh, cartoons. You remember that when the adults talked, you go, wah, 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 wah. Well, this is what they basically heard. When Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, they were basically going, we didn't, didn't compute, didn't understand a word you said, came out as mumbled, <laughs> mumbled information. And, you know, we tend to do the same thing with God sometimes. When God says, I'm going to do something, and he shows us something, and we kind of go, okay, God, that doesn't compute. I don't think that makes sense. Uh, God, you said you, you're going to send a sword into our life. Nope, that doesn't compute. I'm not going not gonna to accept that. You're gonna, you did, came to bring division in the family. Nope, doesn't compute. Not you know, not going to believe that. And then when those things happen to us, we get blindsided because we never really paid attention to it. We heard it and yet didn't hear it. And this is something we need to be very careful of when we go about our business that we don't go and read God's word with a preconceived idea of what it means. And I've seen this happen on many occasions with people who who believe in predestination so strongly that they believe that people are predestined to hell and they will read every verse that says whosoever will as if you know it's whosoever will that is called by God 
and they'll add a whole bunch of words to it to match their preconceived doctrine. And we've got to be very careful about that. We want to read God's word and say, God, I want you to tell me what it is you're trying to teach me. Not what do I think and how do I twist this into what I think. Because it becomes very easy for us to do that and struggle with sometimes. Because sometimes we don't like to struggle with scriptures that don't seem to match what we think. And it's very important for us to sit down with those and say, God, I need you to share with me and teach me how is this true? What is true about this verse that I need to know? And here we see him telling the disciples, I'm going to go and suffer. Matter of fact, I'm going to die and then I'm going to raise again in three days. And it still doesn't seem to understand that. But you look at this and it goes, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, it shall not be so unto you. Now, when I read this sentence from Peter, I find this so comical. Okay, He's just told Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. He's been following him and calling him Master and Lord for about two and a half, three and a half years. And all of a sudden, he goes, oh, by the way, Master, Lord, Savior, God, uh, you're not going to the cross. And I don't know if you all can see the comedy in this, but it's like, here's the, man, here's the servant, the slave, saying, uh, hey, Master, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, it's not going to happen. But, you know, even when we say that, how many times have we told God, God, I am not going to do whatever it is he's telling us to do. God says, go ye into all the world, preach and teach the gospel. And we go, no, thank you, God. I'm, I'm happy just stay in here. Jesus says, be obedient and, and be righteous. And we go, no, I kind of like my sins. How often do we do just what Peter did? No, well, Lord, I know you're Lord. I know you're God, but... Uh, my case is just a little bit different. You've got to understand, my, I'm just a little bit different case. I'm a special case, God. And we, we tend to do that to him a lot. Uh, hear it all the time at the, at, the, at the prison with the guys. Well, if you just knew why I did what I did, you, you, you wouldn't mark me down. If you just understood why I was late for class, you wouldn't be writing me up. If you just understood why I, I showed up three hours late for a three-hour class, you would... You would understand that I just don't deserve to be in trouble. How many times did our kids do that kind of? If you just understood, you know, you just got to understand what happened. You know, school was so bad, and this happened, and that happened, and well, hey, boss, if you just understood, you know, my car broke down, uh, you know, and uh, ran out of gas. I should have bought the gas last night, but I ran out of gas on the way to work, and that's why I didn't come to work, and I didn't call. We do the same thing with God, and we do it all the time. We like to make excuses. We like to tell God what we are and aren't going to do so often. Shouldn't be. Shouldn't do it. <laughs> but just as Paul, oftentimes we do. And Jesus' answer is so interesting. He says, get you behind me, Satan. He's not even really talking to, to Paul. He knows whose words are being spoken to him from uh, excuse me, Peter, not Paul. He, he understands whose words are being spoken by Peter. Get you behind me, Satan. Because he loved his disciples. The last thing Jesus really wanted to do in the flesh was go to the cross. Probably the last thing he wanted to do even as God was go to the cross. To be separated from the Father. 
And you've got to remember, we've said this, the hardest thing that Jesus went through on the cross was when he became sin and the Father turned his back on him. Okay? The pain of the, pain of the cross was terrible. Nails through the, through the wrist and the, and the feet, the beating that he took with the Roman flagellum, the crown of thorns pressed on his head, the pounding with the, from the fist that he took, the, the pulling off of his beard, all of those things, all those physical pains were terrible. But the real pain was that heartache when the father turned his back on him. He became sin in an entity that had never been separated. <coughs> never been separated, was ripped apart because Jesus became sin. That was the pain that he didn't want to face. Physical pain, he, that was temporary, and he knew that was temporary. But the scar left when he was separated from the Father would be something he'll remember for all of eternity, the price that he paid for our salvation, to become sin and be separated from the Father. And I, and I say this, we can't really understand that depth of pain that they felt. The closest thing we can have is if somebody's been married for a long period of time and, they, and then all of a sudden they're widowed. And they were very much in love with that person and all of a sudden that's split. The next closest part thing is probably that first boyfriend, girlfriend that you fell deeply in love with and thought was the greatest thing, was going to last forever when it broke up. But none of those are anything compared to what Jesus went through when he was separated from the Father. The emotional pain of that separation that is of something that had never been torn apart. And we know that God knows everything, but I don't understand how he could know what it would be like to be separated from himself when nothing like that had ever happened. Yeah, and that's what he went through. That extreme pain. And so when Satan comes along through Peter saying, this isn't going to happen, we'll make sure it doesn't happen, Part of Jesus in his flesh might have been really ready to say, well, that sounds really good to me, but no, he immediately gets you behind me, Satan. I'm not even going to entertain such a thought. I'm not even going to entertain, he says, you are an offense to me, and this literally is a stumbling block. He says, you're trying to be a stumbling block. You're trying to keep me from going where I need to go. This is something we need to be very careful of. How often do we listen to Satan and get a stumbling block thrown into our path? because we dare to even listen. Sometimes we don't really understand the power of the entertaining of the thoughts, negative thoughts. When you start to entertain them, they, they stick in you. If you listen to somebody giving you gossip and maligning somebody, and you go, well, and even if you go, well, I don't think that's true of them, you've got a bad thought stuck in your brain. So that the next time somebody comes along and says, you know what I heard about so-and-so? You still don't believe it, but all of a sudden it starts being linked to the other thought that you had, had heard. The Bible calls those thoughts cockatrice eggs, the poison that gets into your mind and eventually will hatch if you let too many of them get there. By the time you heard three or four times that somebody's a terrible person because the rumor is going around and you listen to two or three people giving you that rumor and, it's in, and it is false, whether it's true, all of a sudden your mind has been poisoned about that person. Which is why we cannot even let those things get into our minds. 
How many times have you been mad at somebody because you heard somebody else tell you all the bad things they did and you don't even know the person? Okay. How many times has that happened where the where a, a person will be talking to you about their spouse and they'll tell you all about how terrible their spouse is? You haven't even ever met their spouse. You're hearing one side of the story and you've already decided their spouse is a dog. You know, a worthless dog just because of what that one person tells you. And how often is it a lopsided statement? Uh, I've seen it so many times. You're ready to, you're ready to go you know, grab that person by the throat, shake them like, what's wrong with you? And then you find out the other side of the story. And I, oh, uh, maybe I should re, you know, hold my judgment, which is why it's a good thing not to listen to those kind of things. Because you never know whether what you're hearing is the truth. And also having tried to fix problems, I also know one thing about truth. One person tells you a story and they believe it's absolutely true. And they tell it with just minor changes that make them look good. Okay, they tell you mostly the truth, but they don't tell you what they did to, in there to cause reactions. And then you listen to the other person who tells you mostly true stuff, but twists it just enough to make themselves look good. And somewhere in the middle is where, where the truth usually lies. And this is what happens in courts. Courts become that crucible of Okay, let's get all the sides out in there in the open and let's find out. Let's try to figure out what really happened. Who really said what, when they said it, how they said it. And usually you find out the truth lies someplace in the center of what both sides are saying. And here we see too often where we start talking to God and go, God, I just, I don't know about this. God, I, you know, I, I'm accepting a stumbling block. Somebody says something. Somebody says something about somebody. Somebody says something about a situation that I'm getting ready to go into. Uh, somebody kills your dreams. Have you ever had your dreams killed by people saying, I'm going to go do such and such. Oh, no, I know so-and-so did, did that, and they failed miserably, or I did that, and I didn't do well, or, you know, every, every one of those things is a scam. Now, some of that may be worth making them think about. But how many of our own dreams have you had killed in your own lifetime by people throwing stumbling blocks in you? Nobody can do that. That, that doesn't make sense. As you watch other people make, do well in that business. I'm going to go into business for myself. Oh, no, you can't go into business. You know, most people that go into business go, go bankrupt. Well, it is true that most people that go into business go bankrupt. But if you're not willing to try, you'll also never reap the rewards of the activity. And Jesus says, you're an offense, a stumbling block. For you savor not the things of God. In other words, you do not think about these opinions. You do not consider, you do not look at. How many times in your life do you don't think about God's word? God, I'm going to do such and such. I didn't pray, I didn't read God's word, I didn't do anything to seek God's plan, but I just tell him, okay, God, I'm going to do this. Or, God, I'm going to do that. And again, didn't do anything. Didn't seek any counsel. Didn't seek God's plan. Didn't pray about it. Unfortunately for us, most of what the majority of Christians do is done without consulting God. God is supposed to be our Lord and Master, and yet we go, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get into this business. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. Uh, in James, it says we should be asking, Lord willing, we will do such a thing. And you know, most of my bad decisions have come when I tell God what I'm going to do. God, I'm going to go do this. 
and watch all the bad problems occur. And as a father and a husband, many times I've had bad things happen to my kids and my wife because I just told God I was going to go do something. You know, made my pro-con list. It looks good to me, God. <laughs> Sounds like a wonderful plan to me, God. Look, look, God, there's, there's 12, 12 pros and only three cons. It's a good plan. And later on, God says, well, I wasn't in it. It wasn't my plan. It wasn't what I wanted. You had all those pros. It looked really good. Lean not unto your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And yet so often we'll go here, here's my list of goods, God. Oh, God, it's a really good plan. And God says, nope, that's not what I want you to do. We need to be able to spend time. God, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to talk to? Who do you, who do you want me to spend time with? Where should I go? And it's so easy to spend time, well, God, I think it's a really good thing to do. I'll go, visit, I'll go visit this person. I'll go do this. I'll go do that. I'll go to this church. I'll go to that church. I'll move here, God. Uh, hey, God, every, you know, things are getting really hard here, so I think what I'm going to do is move. Yeah, I've done that. God, is really hard here. I think this isn't my calling. I'm going to move. And moved into a worse situation. God, I don't, I don't know if this is really the place. This job is a really good job. You know, everything's going wrong. It's time to go find another job. We want to be very careful because sometimes those bad situations are a time for us just to say to God, okay, God, what do you want? What are you trying to teach me? What do you want me to do? Sometimes it's just learning to be Christ in the situation. You know, Christ, getting ready to go to the cross, wasn't the first place he wanted to go. He just knew he had to. And he's saying, I want, I, in one point, I want to go. But yet at the same time, he's not really wanting to go because it's going to be painful. And here he says, you do not savor the things of God, but those of men. And we are fleshly beings. We do more of our decisions by the flesh than any other thing. I know that's been true of me most of the time. You know, like I say, I put my pro-con list and I, you know, I don't put prayer in it. And go, God, okay, well, God, you know, it was a really good decision. It was a really good plan. And God had to break me of that. And it took him a long time to break me of that because I am an administrator. I am a planner. And I was trying to work my way out, plan my way out of a very bad situation. And God just wouldn't let any of the plans work. Which is really hard for a planner. You look at the plan and say, it was a good plan, God. And God says, it's not my way. It's not, not, what I want, not what I want you to do. I want you to trust in me. And when I finally told God I give up, that was the one time I heard an audible voice, it's about time, and everything changed. Everything changed when I quit. When I quit trying to do it myself. And I'm trying to get better in making God part of all my plans so that he can lead. And it's a much easier and better life when you just put him in, the, in it. We say, God, help me, lead me, guide. And you start making better decisions because God's, they're God's decisions. And God says, well, you know, I know what's going to happen 20 years from now. You know, you're not including the pros that are 20 years down the road uh, on your pro-con list. I could, I could give you a whole bunch of cons that, from 20 years from now and a whole bunch of pros from 20 years from now. And if you included those in your evaluation, you might find out you made a very bad decision. And we need to be looking at this and moving forward with God and trying to look and not do things in our own 
wisdom, our own understanding. And sometimes that means godly counsel. Being able to go to a Christian brother or sister and saying, hey, this is what I'm praying about. Would you pray with me? Would you help me try to find out what God wants me to do out of this? And just ask for prayer. Just, maybe not even their advice, just prayer. Because if their advice isn't going to be godly, you don't want it anyway. And then you get into the Word and say, God, what is it you want me to do? Is the Word speak in any way to what I'm getting ready to do? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But we put God in the center of it, He'll speak. And sometimes when we do things that seem wrong, it may still be what was right because it was needed to grow us. And again, that 20 years down the road plan looks terrible to us, but God says, I'm going to use it. You've grown because of it. They're going to be grown from it. And God, it's an amazing thing how God will so often use what we do that's wrong and then use it later on as a blessing. And he says, and he'll tell you, well, it really wasn't the best plan, but here's how I'm going to use it. You're going to be more sympathetic to the people who do go the wrong path. Just think of this. If you'd made all the right decisions every single time in your life, and God instantly changed you to be like him quickly, how much sympathy would you have for those who struggle getting there? Practically none. You know, I've looked at my life, and I've been a real slow learner. God's had to bang me overhead with two-by-fours and, and four-by-fours and whatever the next size up, eight-by-eights, whatever. He's had to bang me over the head many times with those things. And I've took to him and go, God, why couldn't I be like so-and-so who changed so quickly? But you know, as I've watched over the years, that person whose life changed quickly usually have very little grace for those who are learning slow. Because in their mind, it is, what's wrong with you? God changed me instantly overnight. What, why, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with your faith? And they can get very self-righteous in it. So in one sense, it's good to be a slow learner because it does make you more patient when other people say, you know, hey, I've, I've had lots of problems. Well, you'll get there. God will, God will teach you. When I, when I share about things that I've done, you've got to wonder, one thing you really have to understand is I've been walking with God for 46 years learning how to do the things that I'm doing. And I've been very fortunate to start right at the beginning of my Christianity. So I've learned over years how to do things and how to, how to walk with God. And if you all had known me 20, 30 years ago, you go, what, what kind of crazy guy is he doing all these stupid things? But it also has made me patient with people when I see them make bad decisions. Kind of heartbroken because I'm going, oh no, you don't want to learn the hard way. Let's, let's do this the smart way. Try to learn. Try to learn the, the easy way. But most of us, unfortunately, have to learn the hard way. Most people have to have their own hand burnt before they learn that the stove is hot. They can't learn from somebody else burning their hand that the stove is hot. And you know, going the wrong way, making bad decisions. They just have to learn themselves. And sometimes those are pretty hard decisions. And we want to just keep that in mind. God wants us to think on godly things. Concentrate on his word. Get into his word and learn from his word and learn to be guided by him. Learn it faster than I did. You know, only take 20 years to learn it, not 40. Be, get ahead of the curve. Then Jesus said unto his disciples in verse 24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is an interesting thing. Forsake himself, deny himself, forsake himself, take up his cross and follow me. The hardest thing in our Christian walk is to deny ourselves. 
How many times do we have to be right? Because maybe even we know we're right, and we're going to fight tooth and nail to be right. One thing I have learned over the years, there's very few things that I have to be right over. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is something I'm going to be right over. I will fight tooth and nail that he is the Son of God and he is the Son of God. That he died on the cross and that he's the only way to heaven, I will fight tooth and nail. That the word of God is absolutely true, I will fight tooth and nail over. Much more than that, I will tell you what the truth is. I will even try to give you good reasons why it's true. But if you don't want to believe it, I also believe you have the right to be wrong and be disciplined by God over time. Because God's word doesn't return void, and if you're following his word, eventually you're going to learn the truth. And I trust God's word, and I trust God to bring you to the truth. When it's a salvation issue, a life and death, eternity issue, that's something that's pretty important. But if it's something about somebody's sin, somebody's activity, somebody's choices, go to the Bible, give them good counsel, and if they don't want to believe it, okay, God, <laughs> go get them. <laughs> Help, help teach them. I was trying to help them from going through a lot of series of painful lessons to get there. But I had to go through a long series of painful lessons to get there. Most of my kids have had to go through a long series of painful lessons, even though I've tried to teach them, do, don't do the things that I did. There's plenty of other things you need to learn. You know, don't, learn the, don't relearn the stuff I've done wrong. And in some cases they don't, some cases they do. But here it says, we deny ourself. We, we look at people and we go, I do not have to be right. I do not have to be the one that is always on, the, on, the, on right. Even when you know you're right, you can still let somebody be wrong. Let them be right in their own eyes and let God teach them if they're not going to listen. I will give people scriptures. I will give people, and oftentimes I'll tell you, this is what I believe, this is why I believe, and you can believe it. You know, if you don't want to believe it, be my guest. And there are certain things that I do believe in a more of a minority position. Something like Daniel's 70 weeks. I don't agree with the, the majority of, their in, of interpretation. On Gethsemane, I do not believe that Jesus was praying about, uh, to avoid the cross. I believe he was praying against dying in Gethsemane. Because Satan was making him bleed to death in Gethsemane and was pressuring him so hard. I do not believe that Jesus died on a Friday. I believe he died on a Wednesday. But none of those things are something I'm going to shake people and say, you must believe the way I do. I can show you all the reasons I believe it. But it will be up to you on whether you're going to believe it or not. And it's not the end of the world if you don't. I will just teach what I believe. Uh, until somebody can give me credible evidence that says you're wrong, which nobody has up to this point. But there's certain things that are just. You have to stand and fall before God. The Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher we have. When you're studying the Bible, your first step when you go to read the Bible is, God, help me to understand what I'm reading. Guide me and lead me. And when you've come across something that's very hard to understand, go to God and say, Father, I need you to show me what these verses mean. This is, I did this many times as a teenager before I really knew how to use concordances and getting the Greek and the Hebrew and everything. There were times when I would be very confused because when, as a youngster I went to Pentecostal churches, Southern Baptist churches, all kinds of different churches over the time. And they, on certain verses, would say totally different opposite views. And I'm going, God, both views can't be right. What is right? 
And the Holy Spirit would give me the answer, and that's what I stood with, and then I learned how to study the Bible, and I found out that the Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about. Pretty amazing that the Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about, uh, but he did. And so learn to do that. Learn to go. When you come across something that's hard to understand, hard for you to be able to understand, ask God, show me what these mean. Help me to understand these verses. And avoid commentaries until God's given you an answer. I love commentaries. They're very good. They have their place. And that includes your little commentaries at the bottoms of your study Bibles. <laughs> avoid those until you've talked with God and come. Because all the commentary is, is a man's opinion on what the verses say. Some of them are very good. Some of them are very bad. Some very good commentaries have very bad spots in them. <laughs> Why? Because they are human. And the commentary is not part of the scriptures. <laughs> All right? I, do, I always bring that up. And like I say, I love commentaries, but I look and say, God, what does this say? Give me what this says, and then I will look at a commentary and see what other great men of God have said. And oftentimes I find they, they agree with me, and sometimes I go, well, God, we've got a dif difference of opinion here. And I do more study and in more in-depth, and I usually find somebody that will agree with, with what the Spirit has told me. And, but do, when you're studying, use the Holy Spirit. He's the number one study tool you have at your disposal. And whether it's a Greek lexicon or a Hebrew lexicon or a concordance, whatever it might be, the Holy Spirit is your first and foremost interpreter of Scripture. And getting into the Greek and Hebrew is wonderful. And we're going to, I've been talking a lot about it, and we are going to, I've got to find out when, but we're going to do how to study the Bible. So 13-week course on how to study the Bible with different ways to study the Bible and the strengths and weaknesses of each one of those and show you how to use the various numbers of tools so that you can get a good jump start on how to study. I just have to figure out what day and when, <laughs> when I'll do something like that. But I think it's very important that we do that here, and I think it's about time to do it here. So we're going to be doing that and helping people. And it says, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He wants our flesh crucified. Our flesh crucified, destroyed. Now, when we go on that cross, we like to jump off the cross. We, Romans uh, 12.1 says that we are a living sacrifice, and when the fire starts burning up, we like to jump off the altar. God, I don't want this pain. It hurts. And it does hurt to have our flesh killed unless we're willing to let it happen. The good news is, whatever pain we go through to have our flesh crucified, the other side is that God rules. And when God rules, everything we've lost is nothing. So we want to keep that in mind as we're going forward. Then he goes into verse 26, uh, 25. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. This is something that is very true for us to understand. If we save and do everything we want to do, and it's not God's will, we actually lose out on a lot of things that we should be going through. And hopefully you've lived enough and maybe you've experienced this enough times that you're starting to understand this. Maybe you, hopefully you've done it both ways. I'd love it if you've never done the save your life and, and lose what God's plan, but... I'd be very surprised if anybody has done, done that all the time. I've done many times where I did what I thought was good and did what was good for me and found out it was worthless. 
It was like eating salt, eating dust. It was dry and, and totally worthless. And then there's those times when I just go, God, I don't understand why I'm going to do this, but you said to do it, so we're going to do it. And it turns out to be the best thing that ever happened to you. And beyond the earthly rewards for obeying God, there's the heavenly eternal rewards for following God. And I don't even know what those are like. I just, I enjoy the earthly ones so much, I can't even imagine what the heavenly ones will be because they'll be more, they'll be better than anything that down on this earth following God has been. And when you follow God here, you get the blessings here, but you get eternal rewards in heaven. And it says, if you save your life, you will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And hopefully you've been there. Hopefully you've been there where you've denied yourself and followed God and made wise decisions. Doing whatever it might be. The job you are, where you live, the church you go to, stepping out and being obedient to God in whatever area of your life. For many people, it might be to step forward and to teach or just to step forward and to give tithes. You know, tithes and offerings for a lot of people is a big step forward saying, well, God, it makes no sense to me, but you said to do it, I'm going to try it. Or stepping forward to teach. Something that scares most people to death is to get forward and to teach. Maybe make a disciple. Who are you going to spend time with teaching them to grow, with, grow in Christ? And that could be anybody because every one of us should be doing it, number one. Every one of us has somebody in our life that knows less about God than we know. No matter how long you've been walking with God, somebody out there knows less than you know. And if you've been walking with him for a long time, there's lots of people that know less than you know. And the question is, who are you investing into? Paul said, told Timothy and Titus both, find men that can train men you know, to be, to be followers. And you know, if each one of us just took one person under our belt and said, here, here's how you learn to study the Bible. Here's how you pray. Here's how you do, here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. And we teach them to train somebody. You realize that it's kind of sad, but in America especially, we have people that have a large knowledge of the Bible, but don't live it. Why do they not live it? Mostly because they've never seen anybody live it. They don't see anybody live out their Christian walk. I was very fortunate because my dad would read the Bible and he'd apply it to his life and he lived it out. So I got to watch somebody that went out and did door knocking, who did street evangelism, who taught, who did Bible studies at home, that discipled us kids and, and others, who took what they said in the Word and lived it out. I took my kids and did the same thing, and it's kind of funny because now that they're on their own, they give me these phone calls. You know, I never realized how much I learned, but I was sitting in this Bible study, and I had the answers that people needed. Why? Because they saw, not just went to church, not just had mom and dad talk about it at home, which is better than many families do, but we tried to the best of our ability to live out the gospel. And I've shared this, and it's an embarrassing thing, but one time I was driving a youth but, but, uh, in the van to Phoenix. Had just moved to town, was driving through Wikiup, and everybody who knows anything about it knows that Wikiup's a, a, a speed trap. I did not know that Wikiup was a speed trap at the time, and I did not see the signs go, a speed limit go down. And I got pulled over. But you know, for the kids, it was a wonderful time for the kids because they looked at what, how I treated the officer. 
And when the officer was back writing the ticket, or it turned out to be a warning, so I was very fortunate. But they're going, they're going, you're not cussing and, and, and getting all upset about being pulled over. My dad would be going nuts. I'm going, well, I didn't see the speed limit sign change, but if I get a ticket, I get a ticket. I, you know. But you know, they saw something that was different. They saw Christianity lived out in front of them. This is what true discipleship is. We live Christianity in front of the person we're discipling, which is why our best disciples usually are our kids, our grandkids, our nieces, our nephews who get to see us a lot. But we can also do it with somebody who just, we spend time with them. Jesus, when he was raising the disciples, spent four years teaching them how to react in every possible situation that came their way. They would look and say, okay, this is what Jesus did. Oh, yeah, Jesus, this guy came up and was real angry with Jesus. Look how he responded. This guy asked for Jesus' help. This is what he did. They watched and they saw not just Jesus teaching them, but living it. And this is where it's most important that we take the information that we get from the scripture and we live it out. We call it a biblical world view. We look and say, what does the Bible teach on this situation? Somebody wants to share gossip with me. What does the Bible say? Don't listen. Okay. Nope, don't, not interested. My words for usually people is I'll stop them and go on. If you want to talk about this person, bring them here and we'll talk all you want in front of them. You know, I've never had anybody take me up on it for some reason, but uh, it works real well. You want to stop them from talking about people. Okay, you want to talk about so-and-so? Let's get them here and, you know, you can say anything you want to say as long as they're here to tell me their side of the story. And nobody's taking me up on it and nobody ever will because that's not what they're trying to accomplish. But that's standing up for Christ. And I find myself every once in a while getting, getting wrapped up because sometimes I don't instantly realize what's going on and I'm going, nope, nope, stop. We got to, we're not going there. We're not talking about this person behind their back. We're not... If you don't want to say good things about them, I don't want to hear it. And, and I, like I say, I fall every once in a while and I start realizing what's going on and I'm going, no, stop. <laughs> you know, let's pray for them if you want, but we're not going there. But we want to live out God's word. What does God say? Are we going to live it out? Are we going to live it out perfectly? Absolutely not. But he's saying we need to. And this is where true discipleship comes out. In verse 26 it says, What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Have you ever met somebody who seems to have everything in their life, uh, but they're still not happy? I've met numbers of people that they have the nice house, they have the cars, they have money in the bank. To most of the world they look pretty happy, that's the face they put on, but if you get to know them, you find out really they're not happy. They've gained the world, but they've lost that, in, they still don't have that inner peace. And the sad thing is, they won't have it for all of eternity because they have just not given to God. And if they just say, God, I want what you want. You know, maybe that doesn't mean you're gonna have everything. God's gonna say, I, I wanna be your supplier and take care of you. Maybe you'll still have everything. There's been some very wealthy millionaires that are Christians that turn around and give God a large part of the money back. Uh, we look at somebody like the founder of Caterpillar, uh, J.C. Penney, Sears and Roebuck, 
they all gave God 90% of their money and kept 10%. And were still millionaires, which means they were giving God a lot of money to do whatever. I can't even imagine what ministries would you give that much money to. Now, I'm a millionaire. That means they gave away $9 million, giving God 90%. Yeah, and you go, where do you give $9 million to? How do you spread that much money out between ministries? Uh, and yet, that's what they did. And God knew that they would be in, have integrity in that, and God blessed them and kept giving them money because he knew they'd give it back. And that doesn't mean every one of us is to go out and give 90%. I'm just saying, if God tells you to give money, give it. Because you can't outgive God. You really can't. So when he challenges you to go and give more, give more. It's been amazing to me over the years as I keep giving more and more to God. I have a percentage that I give, and I don't tell anybody what it is because I don't want them to think anything about it, but I have a percentage that I give, and I try to increase it each year, just a little bit or sometimes a big one. In case, like recently when God asked me, because I made the statement, you can't get out, out give God, and on the way home God said, do you really believe that statement? And I'm going, okay, God, how much more? <laughs> I didn't even argue because I knew I'd lose the argument in the long run. I went, how much more? How much more do you want than what I've been giving? And he made it a pretty significant increase. But it's just the idea. How much do you trust God in your whole life? When, you're, when he's asking you to open your mouth and witness to somebody, that family member that you think is a terror in your family and totally anti-God, are you willing to, if God tells you to, Open your mouth and witness to them. The, the person who's standing in front of you in the, in the supermarket line, they're not going to change lines if you start talking to them about God. They may not be happy that you're talking to them about God, but they're not going to switch lines usually. The, the people that are waiting for you in the doctor's office, how many people do you spend time to talking with about God? I've always shared with you, there was a man at College Park who used to buy the groceries for the men's breakfast and cook the men's breakfast. He would go Friday night to buy the groceries. He said it took him three to four hours to buy groceries. Not because it took him three to four hours to buy groceries, but he ended up talking to five or six people at least about God and Jesus and inviting them to the breakfast the next day. <laughs> so quite an interesting thing. Well, I've, I've told everybody, if I walk past you at the shopping at any store, don't take it personal because I'm, I'm getting better, but I'm, I go to stores for one reason. That's to buy something and get out of the store as fast as possible. That's the only reason I go to stores. In and out. I can be, I can be in and out of the store before most people have even barely gotten out of their car. I can be in, get the purchases, and be ready to go. Uh, my wife and I go shopping She'll stop and talk to somebody. I'll go get all the groceries, and she'll still be talking to the same person. Okay, I'm ready to go when you are. Uh, but he spent hours ministering to people. Do we have that same patience to be able to minister to people? Or are we so busy running, our, running around our life to do what we want to get done? Jesus was going to Jerusalem, through, and he went through Samaria, and ended up talking to the woman at the well in Samaria. And so many things that make, don't make sense on that. He was on his way someplace, number one, which most of us, if we were on our way someplace, we go, I don't have time to talk to you. I've got to get someplace. And he's talking to a woman, which is not done, by, by a single man with a single woman in the middle of a square with nobody there because it was the middle of the day and nobody would have been there. 
and he was a Samaritan. Okay? All these factors played against him talking to her, and yet he took time to talk to her. He's on the way to heal Jairus' daughter when the woman with the issue of blood touches out and touches him. And he stops and he says, who's touched me? And stops and talks to her and tells her she's healed. Most of us would have said, oh, something happened, but I'm just going to, I've got a plan. I've got to get to where I'm going. Got to do what I've got planned. Now, does that mean we stop and talk to every single person that comes across our path? Maybe, maybe not. We see in Acts 3, Peter and John heals the lame man that's by gate beautiful that enters into the temple. How many times did Jesus go to the temple and how many times did he pass that lame man that was set there every day for 25 years? Okay, how many times did Jesus go walk past that guy and it wasn't the time for him to be ministered to until Peter and John ministered to him? Okay, so we want to be careful just because there's an opportunity does not mean we are the one that needs to minister. Okay, just because there is a need does not mean you are called to fill that need. And I've shared this in churches. There's many people that say, well, this has to be done, so I'm going to fill it. And I have said over and over, I would just as soon see a job not done than be done by the wrong person. And I've told pastors, you know, over my lifetime, they'll go, well, we can't get nursery workers. I go, I can get you nursery workers real quick. They go, how? Close nursery for a couple weeks. They go, what? That, that, the babies will be crying in the, in the sanctuary. I go, exactly. And you'll have plenty of people who will volunteer because when they complain to you, you tell them, take one, one Sunday a month to watch the kids. Very easy to do, but nobody's willing to do it. They'd rather coerce and bend arms and, and make a handful of people do a lot of work than to make other people inconvenient and say, hey, we've got a job. If you want to, don't want this to continue, do this. You know, having along that, I read, in, I read the biography of D.L. Moody, and it, there was a time when he was ministering. This woman had their ba baby in the service with her, and the baby got fussy. She couldn't get the baby to be quieted down, and all the people are telling her to get out. But before she leaves the door, he goes, young lady, I just want to tell you, tomorrow night we're having a special service. Only mothers with children are allowed to come, and I'm inviting you to make sure you come back. Said it was the hardest message he ever preached, you know, trying to preach over all the yelling, yelling kids. But you know, that woman needed that touch that somebody cared enough about her that she was special enough, even though she had a yelling infant, to, that her soul was important. But at the same thing, many times if the wrong person is in a job, they're not happy doing the job. The person who was supposed to be doing the job looks and says, well, I thought I was supposed to be the nursery worker, but they seem to have plenty of nursery workers, and they never volunteer. Uh, I thought I was supposed to be the Sunday school teacher, but all the Sunday school classes are filled, so I guess that's not my, not my calling. And unless they press and persevere, they don't ever step forward. So you've got somebody who's in the wrong place who's going to quit because they're going to get frustrated because they're not doing the job God called them to do. You got the person who should have been doing it, not doing it because they think it's been that they're not needed. And you end up with nobody doing the job. Very critical. Do what you're called to do, whatever that might be. Because I truly believe that in the church, everybody has something they're supposed to be doing for that church. 
Everybody has something they're supposed to do. What that is is between them and God. It might be just that you're going to come in and clean the church each week. Might be you could be Loretic, picking the weeds up out of the, out of the, out of the uh, facility all the time before she got so sick she couldn't do it. Now, when I first got here, there was never a weed anywhere on this property because Loretta loved to pull the weeds. <laughs> now there's weeds everywhere and we have to, <laughs> have to get them all picked up all the time. But you know, what is it that, that God has asked you to do? That might be simple, might be big. Might be something nobody ever knows. Most people never know who cleans a church. And especially in small churches where they're not paid. They just come in faithfully every week, clean the church, and nobody knows who it is. They just come in and it's a clean church. And most people don't ever think about saying thank you to the person who cleans the church. It's just a very unwelcome uh, job unless they stop doing it. And then they'll go, wow, the church is getting pretty dirty. You know, somebody ought to clean it. Go, yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't you come in and clean it sometime? <laughs> but how many jobs are there in a church? More than we can even count. I used to go to a church that if you wanted to do something, all you had to do is come up and they say, okay, I, I think God's calling me. One of, the, one of the strangest things I ever heard somebody goes, he goes, I want to have a Bible study out at, the, out at the airport. Why do you want a Bible study out at the airport? He goes, well, that's where God's telling me to go. Well, every week he had people getting saved at his Bible study at the airport. Most of them were tourists coming through, coming through that just stopped at the Bible study. He had a handful of employees that went there all the time. But for the most part, it was visitors coming and going, and he saved a lot. He led lots of people to the Lord. Yeah, and people were laughing at him when he first said, God's telling me to go do a Bible study at the airport. When I was a teenager, we put together a box of supplies to send to some missionaries. And this person brought in, amongst all these supplies, bought a case of peanut butter. Everybody laughed at the person for, you know, you're sending peanut butter in this box? Well, when he got the letter back, the only thing they could talk about was the peanut butter. Why? Because peanut butter was like $15 a jar in the country they were in. And they were U.S. and they were Americans who loved their peanut butter. <laughs> you know, they go, you don't understand how great a gift that was because we could have never afforded to buy that kind of peanut butter. Somebody just listening to God and doing something that seems totally ridiculous. What is it God's called you to do? It may seem to your mind that it's something totally ridiculous, but just remember, it may be just what's needed what God is trying to tell you to do. And we'll, we'll help anybody start anything God tells them to do. You know, don't expect me to do what God's told you to do, but, but I'm more than willing to help people start different studies and different activities because it takes the whole body to minister to everybody. I can't minister to everybody. There's just no way. We've got a whole need for somebody to do something like a celebrate recovery, but we have to have somebody who's capable of being a leader and who's called to be a leader in it. We need to do things to minister to our local neighborhood. But until we have the people that are called to do it, we're not going to be doing it. Because I'm not going to twist arms to get people to do things. And you know what? If I see something that's not working, I'm, just, I'm very likely to say, okay, it must not be God, what God wants at this time, and stop it. And, you know, and this is something important, just as we did in the business meeting when we talked about the parade. Do we want to continue passing out the Bibles and tracts in the parade? I don't know. The church decided it was a good idea to keep doing it. 
and getting God's word in the tracks out can't hurt, definitely can't hurt. But at the same token, in, in four years, we've never had anybody send back a letter saying, I got saved by the track you gave us in the, that we got in the, at, at the, at the, at the uh, parade. Now, I kind of believe somebody somewhere has come to Christ because of it, or at least had some seeds planted that led them to Christ. But we have to keep it always looking at it. Is this what we do? Is this, how, is this the best way to use our time and money? Is it our best way to use our effort? We use, the, we use the website. There might come a day when we go, is the website worth it? Right now, it's definitely worth it. We reach over, we reach thousands of people on the, on the website that are listening to the messages. It's one of the strongest outreaches we have right now. But if there came a day where we looked at it and said, well, the website's only had you know, 50 people hit it this month, we might have to say, okay, well, let's see if it continues that pattern. It may be time to say, time to get rid of it. Now, I don't really anticipate that happening, but who knows? I just picked a random number. And we probably still do it, but it would be more of a question, is this cost effective? Is this the best way to use several hundred dollars a year to minister? And we need to always do that. And it's not saying we just dump it because of something, but it's something you have to go. Is what we're doing still working? And because there are churches that are still doing things that they've done for 50 years. Nobody cares whether you do it anymore, but it's what we've always done, so therefore we've got to do it. And that's not a good reason to, to do it. We've always met at 11 o'clock for our morning service. Well, maybe that's good, maybe it's bad. If God said change it, we'd change it. Especially when you know the whole reason that we do that is a crazy reason anyway which we'll go into the history of anyways later. I'll tell you the history of why we meet at 11 o'clock. It's a bizarre reason. Uh, but let's try to finish this up. Verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in glory, in the glory of his Father, with his angels, and then shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, some, there are some standing here that shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Why do we do what God asks us to do? Right here, the Son of Man is coming in his, in his glory and will reward. Now, it kind of sounds like a selfish reason to, to want to serve God is to get rewards, but isn't that why we do anything? Why do we go to work? You know, even if you like the job, you go to work for the reward of the money on payday. Or when you do the books and say, okay, I made money this month in the company. Very few people like a job so bad uh, like the job so well that it, and it's their own business that they will continue to lose money for the rest of their life because they can't afford to. At some point they've got to make, get rewarded for what they do. Why do most people do philanthropy? Because they have a good feeling about it. They feel good about helping people and there's a reward that's involved. When we serve God, we are serving him for an eternal reward. Now, what an eternal reward means in heaven, I have no idea. Okay, I have no idea what it is, but Jesus is encouraging us to do it. Paul encourages us to do it. So there's something in seeking the reward that's eternal. Now, I don't know really what an eternal reward is going to be. I have no idea. But Jesus says it's something that's going to be worthwhile because he says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you rewards. 
And if he's saying he's going to give rewards, there's got to be some benefit in a reward even in eternity. Now, what does it mean? I don't know. I really don't know what it means. I have this picture in my head of, of the heavenly kingdom, and he says, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And I have this picture of first floor studio apartments. <laughs> you know, you've got a bed, a little kitchenette, <laughs> uh, and a bathroom or whatever you need in heaven, you know, uh, up to the top where you get the, the entire suites, you know. Now, I, that may be a little silly, but by the same time, is that our reward? Is that our reward? You made it through the doors and you've got your studio. You're not stuck out in the middle of the forest, but you've got a, you got a bed and a, and a bathroom. <laughs> Huh? You're not in a tent, not in a tent out, outside the city walls. Now, I know that may be a little silly, but that is really the picture I have. The greater the rewards, the bigger the, the suites of rooms that we have. And somebody up there is going to have the top floor or something, you know, the penthouse suite. Who that might be won't be me. I'll be somewhere down a lot closer to the bottom, I'm sure. But the rewards that we have for obedience of serving Christ. Now, a studio may be too, too far down, but... But you get the picture of what I'm saying on this when I say this. There's going to be rewards. And I think the rewards are going to be a lot in the, the mansion that we get, the suite of rooms, because mansion is not really a, a word we understand. It doesn't mean a freestanding mansion on a hillside. It's a suite of rooms, a, a mansion within the palace and the castle. And it says, I bring my reward for every man. And he said, this is kind of an interesting statement. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here that shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, we know that there's at least one standing there that did, and that was John. Okay, John got the vision on, of Jesus' end days in Patmos. He saw everything. We also know that Peter, James, and John saw the transfigured Christ in the next chapter, which is seeing him in his glory. And they could be with nuns being talked about this. Could be just the anointing of the Holy Spirit being able to see things the way that God wants to be seen. Have you ever experienced a time when it just feels like you are so close to God that you feel like you couldn't get any closer? I've had this experience sometimes in worship where it just feels like, God, I, why don't you just take me to heaven? I'm here. Now, I don't feel like that when I'm leading worship because I have to lead worship. I cannot get into worship as much when I'm leading it. I would just as soon God give me a song leader and an instrument players and everything and go be out front where I could just enjoy the worship. But I do what God called me to do at this moment. But I've been there at times where it's just like, God, this is heaven. This is just the taste of heaven. You know, and just a taste of your presence. It's happened to me when I've studied God's, the scriptures at times, where I get so engrossed in the study of God's scripture and go, God, this is wonderful. To me, heaven would be just give me a Bible and just let me sit all the time, God, listening and le learning for you for the rest of eternity. Give me a room and a desk and a Bible and I'd be happy. And I tell you, there would be times that I would be happy because I'd have to find somebody to share what I was learning with. So I'd have to leave my room sometime. But what is it that you've gone through that gives you just that little taste of what God's got in store for you? I hope you've experienced it somewhere, whether it's in prayer. There are people that experience it in prayer. They get so close in their conversation with God that they go, God, I don't ever want this to end. You and I here talking back and forth. I'm listening to you. I'm talking to you. God, I don't want this to end. 
God, I'm so wonderful. This Man, this is so deep, God. I just don't want this moment to end. God, I'm worshiping you, and oh, don't let this end. Little tastes of God's glory. Little tastes of what heaven's really going to be like. And he just shows you the glimpses of it. Just enough to whet your appetite and say, God, I just can't wait. I can't wait when this won't end. That this is not going to be something that I have to let end. And he says, I'm coming. I'm coming. And he dwells within us. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whosoever shall open and come in, I will sup with him and he with me. God dwells in us. And there's those times when we just get so close to him that we almost say, and I know for me anyway, and maybe I'm just strange, but I know there's times when I've just gotten so close. I'm going, is this it? <laughs> am, I, am I going into your presence today, God? Is this, is it the day? Is this, and it's over. And it's like, God, longer next time. And there's those moments when you just step into like eternity and time does not seem to move. Isaiah in chapter 6 said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and the angels cried, holy, holy is the Lord our God. And he saw God sitting on the throne. I believe that that would have been an enrapturing moment that he lost all track of time. And then at the end of it, who shall I send to the people? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, a man of unclean tongue. And God says, here, I've touched you with the fire as he takes the coal off the fire and says, you have been cleansed. Go and speak. Can you imagine what it was, would be like to have to leave that scene? The throne room of heaven, the very presence of God, for however long it was, and all of a sudden he gets to wake up or whatever it was that, that, and sent back to, back to where he was at and said, okay, now you get to live back down there with all the humans. Go, go share, go share. In his presence, because otherwise you're, nobody in, the, in their right mind is going to Nobody would want to leave. This is one thing when I hear about people who say that they've died and, died and gone to heaven. To me, that would be the worst thing that could possibly happen. To have experienced heaven... And even a glimpse and come back. When it says that Jesus wept as he was getting ready to raise Lazarus, most people will teach that Jesus wept because he was, his friend had died. I totally believe that he wept because he knew what he was going to put Lazarus through. Lazarus, I'm going to pull you out of heaven because your sisters are so sad and can't live without you that I'm going to pull you out of heaven. And I hope he wiped most of the, most of the memory of heaven out of Lazarus brain. Just enough to keep him sweet, but enough of it taken out that he didn't suffer. Because that would have to be the worst thing that could have possibly happened. To see heaven and be pulled back into this world. I said, that's a reason to be in this little world. It would be awful. You know, hopefully it would in impress you to try to get everybody there, but I think, it would be I think you'd be depressed for a long time. A really long time because you saw perfection. It would be a hard thing. I can't even imagine it. So when you hear all these people telling you about how wonderful heaven was and how their joy, you know, their joy is to be down here on earth, I really wonder, did you really see heaven? How could you have seen perfection and spent in the presence of God and be happy about being back? It just doesn't make sense to me. Hopefully it should make a, if you're going to come back, you should be a, the best soul winner there is out there because you know what 
what you're headed for, and that should make you a, an extreme soul winner. After you get over the depression of having been sent back. Seems like God would make it easier for you. I would hope so. It's one of the reasons I take all those stories with a grain of salt. Because it doesn't, what I see from these people does not seem to match up what I would expect to see. They're either not evangelistic and, and telling everybody they need to go to heaven, and they also didn't go through the depression of having seen heaven and, and come back. So I start wondering, but either side, you know, if you're going to come back, you better be a soul winner. There should be a longing in your heart for what you're, what you're, what you're no longer seeing. Uh, that's just my, how I would see it. All right. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, help us to see what you would have us to do. Help us to seek your plan to go forward in what you would have us to do. Help us to always seek you in all that we do. And Lord, if there's anybody listening to this that doesn't know you, we ask that they will confess that they're a sinner, confess their sins and repent, and ask you to come into their heart and follow you as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.